It's timely. It's insightful. It's motivating. It's empowering. It's time with Fred, your inspirational broadcast with host Fred Gaddy. So hello to our listeners and welcome to another edition of the Time with Fred podcast. This is a podcast that challenges the mindsets and paradigms that hold us back. I feel very blessed today to have with me a very special guest um, who should be no stranger to a lot of you, really, um, in the person of uh, John David Mann. John, how do you like, do you like to call John or David? I just want to make uh, sure. John, John is John. Fine. Okay. John Madden, for a lot of you readers out there, you're probably familiar with uh, the Goal Giver series. John's uh, an author, he's a public speaker, he's an entrepreneur. I'll let him introduce himself, but John is all things, really. Uh, he has over <laughs> 30 plus books. As I was counting, I counted 28, but he corrected me, letting me know that he has over 30. Um, but what's interesting about, about John and the reason why I wanted him to be my special guest tonight, it's, it's the story behind. Oftentimes when we have our special guests sharing their stories, all we see are the accolades, right? All the good stuff. But what we often don't see or hear are the stories behind, right? What actually made them who they are today. And John didn't start um, by writing 30 books at once. There's a, he had to go through quite a few rejections. And as is the case with a lot of authors, John is no exception. He's actually been rejected over 40 times. Actually, it was one of the books that he wrote, um, mm -hmm. The Recipe. And John, you had to go through several rejections. But before we get into that, I want to say welcome to Time with Fred. And I really appreciate you taking time of your busy writing schedule to share some nuggets of wisdom with our audience tonight. Uh, it's absolutely my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. John joins us from uh, Central Florida. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, the weather is incredibly hot. Here we are in COVID Central, <laughs> enjoying our life. <laughs> no kidding. So John, tell us a little bit about who, who John is, right? Who, who is John? Uh, well, I, you know, my, uh, my parents were school teachers. My father was a, uh, a choral conductor and musicologist. So he was, I grew up with classical music. My mom was an English teacher, but also a pianist and a playwright. So I grew up surrounded by uh, music and writing. And uh, I, I kind of hopped, hate to use that word, but there it is, I, or I moved from career to career. Maybe I should say I pinballed from career <laughs> to career um, all my life. I've kind of been reinventing myself uh, every so often. I didn't set out to do that. It's just what has happened. I've kind of followed my uh, my my passions and my interest, um, and they've they've led me all over the place. So I started out as a musician, classical musician. I played the cello. I was a composer, and that was going to be my life path. And then I got very interested in nutrition and uh, philosophy and nutrition and various things. And I kind of moved into a different area there. And uh, then I got very interested in retail business and and sales and. Uh, I ended up, wherever, whatever I did, I ended up editing other people's stuff. I started writing about the environment and writing about health and writing about natural nutrition and things. And I, I ended up founding a magazine in which I had to edit a whole bunch of other people's stuff. And editing other people's stuff over many years eventually turned into co-writing with people, which turned into writing books. And here I am. Uh, I, had, I would say I have to identify myself as an author. It wasn't my plan, but here we are. <laughs> Thanks for giving us that background, John. You, you, you kind of used the, the terminology pinballed, right? And 
Um, and I'm glad you didn't use the word coincidence because I, I personally believe there are no coincidences in life, right? Given the paths that you've had to travel to get to where you're yes. today with the music and your love of philosophy, I, I, I'd venture to say that they've all led right to, to where you yes. are today, correct? Yes. So regardless of where life finds us, right? We, some of us may find ourselves in very you know, obscure places and, and we may loathe where we are. We may wonder why or what am I doing here? But, but as you've just demonstrated, there is a lesson to be learned along the paths of life wherever you are at any given time. Would that be a fair assessment? Yes. I think it's a very fair assessment. What I would add to that is that the lesson is often not apparent mm. at the time. Um, or the deepest lessons, the most valuable lessons may not show up for, you know, for some time. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, when I was a fairly young guy uh, in my uh, first marriage, because I had several marriages, my first marriage, I, we had a child who died at the age of oh, almost a year, not quite that. a year old. Yeah, it was just, it was such a terrible thing. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Um, I, I, I write about that experience uh, disguised. I mean, it's not uh, autobiographical. That is, I, I lend that experience to the story in one of the Go-Giver books, Go-Giver Leader. You mentioned the Go-Giver book, so for your Go-Giver, there's, there's a handful of them, and there's a book, The Go-Giver Leader. And in that book, the character, I give him that experience. And, and I give him the benefit of that, which was for me, um, I have to be honest and say that when I was a, a young man, I don't think that I was very compassionate. Uh, uh, I don't. I wasn't an awful person, but I just don't see myself as being particularly compassionate or or empathetic when I was in my twenties. But that experience uh, was so painful that uh, I think what happens over time, it gave me the gift of being empathetic to other people's pain in a way that I don't think I had before. And I think that uh, even, so my point is, even the most difficult circumstances, even the most painful circumstances can, over time, mm -hmm. uh, uh, make you a larger version of yourself, make you a better version of yourself, and, and actually deepen your appreciation of, of the life you have. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't love it when horrible things happen. <laughs> of course, no one does. I don't. I don't like it. You mentioned rejection 40 times. I don't particularly care for it when publishers say, no, we don't want your book. <laughs> but it has been an extremely valuable part of my, of my career. I'm going through it right now. How does one deal with that, John? I mean, it's, 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 it's bad enough to, to be rejected, whether, whether it's being ostracized by, by friends or, or being shunned or, or, or failing yes. at something or, or perhaps losing your job or... It, it's hard enough, but 40 times, what is it that, that keeps one going, John? I mean, after yeah. they say, uh, you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. But I, I believe that at some point in life, you have to be a little crazy or passionate maybe um, yeah. about certain things, right? About what you know you've, you've been called to do. Yes. I mean, in your case, how come none of these rejections, John, deterred you from, from your main goal of, of, of knowing what you were called to do as a, as a co-author or, or co-author? I really, the short answer, I want to give a little longer answer, but the short answer is that I just really passionately believed in the value of what we did. We, me and my co-author. Um, and 
quick story, and then I'll say more about that. The quick story is about the go-giver. Um, this is this goes back to 2005, 2006, so over over a, a decade ago. I had no plan to be an author. My plan was to be a screenwriter. That was my plan. You know what they say, man plans and God laughs. Yes, that's right. right? <laughs> so at this time, I was very serious. God must have been laughing uproariously because I had this plan to be an A-list Hollywood screenwriter. And a friend of mine whose stuff I had edited uh, approached me and said, listen, I, I need you to write a book with me. I need you to, I have this idea for a book, but I can't write the book. I need you to write the book with me. And his name was Bob Berg. And his, his idea for this book was The Go-Giver. I didn't see it. I thought, I, 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 go-getter, go-giver. I get it. It's kind of a flip on the, on the And I, I didn't see it really working, to be honest, Fred. <laughs> but I had a friendship with Bob. And I trusted Bob. And also just had a friendship. I said, you know, I should look at this. So I started, I looked at what he'd written so far. I looked at his ideas. And uh, carved a little time out of my schedule, and I just started to, to, to noodle with it. And it, it hooked me. And we wrote the book in probably six weeks. I mean, it went really quickly. Wow. Now, here's the point of the story. Uh, we got an agent. We approached publishers. It was turned down. I don't remember the number, but something like uh, 15, 14, 15, 16 times. Finally, our agent said, you know what? Let's take this manuscript back and take a fresh look at it. We took it back and we spent the next nine months revising it. We revised it thoroughly. And then we took it back to New York again, which is something that you know rarely happens is that you get turned down that many times, take it back and then go back to New York again. That's, and we did, and we got rejected again another dozen times. And number 23, I think it was, said yes and published the book. It's now sold almost a million copies wow. and it's created my career. That's, that was my first major book and that's what I do now. But here's the point of the story. You know, we've all heard these stories of people like uh, Jack Canfield and Martha yes. Hansen who wrote yes. Chicken Soup with the Soul yeah. or Colonel Sanders with his chicken recipe. Yeah, these guys who a thousand went, times. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Knocked on doors and knocked on doors and got turned down a thousand times, but persisted, persisted, persisted. So the moral that we only take from that story is be persistent. Mm. Be persistent, like you're saying. Insanity, but go ahead. Keep doing it. Be crazy. Believe in your passion. That wasn't quite it for us. Yes, but no, because the, those first 14, 15 rejections that we got, those publishers were right to say no, because the book wasn't ready. If one of them had said yes and published the book, it, it never would have sold very many copies. Mm. You would never have heard of it. Mm. We wouldn't be having this conversation. It just wasn't that good. It wasn't ready. So, you know, there's, there's sort of two sides to the rejection business. I think one of them is that you, you, you do need to have passion, follow your passion and have complete and total faith in your dream, in your passion. We've heard this many, many times. Right. I believe that that's true. You need to have this unshakable faith that you have an idea and that idea is gold. It's good. It's yes. strong. At the same time, mm. there are forces around you. Mm. Maybe people who love you, maybe people who don't even know you, absolute strangers, but who have expertise that you don't. That's right. There are forces around you that know better than you do. Yes. That know something you don't know. And so when, the, when you're rejected by the world, 
part of it is you need to hold fast to your dream, but part of it is there also may be something to look at in the rejection. Maybe there's something that you haven't done yet. Maybe there's something that you could do better. Maybe there's something you need to adjust. Maybe, you know, there's always that maybe. And I think it's the, the challenge of holding on to both perspectives at the same time, complete and total unshakable faith in yourself and openness to a perspective that yes. you don't have. Yes. That to me is the secret to, to great accomplishment. Um, because yeah, I, I just think you can't just have one and not the other. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, you could also call it the, the blessing in disguise, right? I mean, sometimes those yes. doors close, but you go back and, and you're thankful that those doors actually did close because if they'd opened, you would have been in a place that you really didn't, didn't want to be. I, this yeah. reminds me of a, a personal experience. This was back in 2007 or eight. Uh, I'd applied for this job with a, with a company, a job that I, I believed I was well qualified for. Yes. For that interview, had a good feeling about that interview, expecting, you know, that I was going to get the call. Back in the day, they, they sent letters in the mail, um, <laughs> which was not too long ago. But I, but I was waiting really for this call or this letter saying, hey, we've offered you the job. And I didn't. I, the day I got, I came back, opened the mailbox. I saw this letter. I was really excited. Opened it and, and read it and it had those, you know, we're sorry to let you know that we found someone else who's more qualified than you, whatever that means. But uh, needless to say, I was I was very disappointed. Um, yes, I was very disappointed because I knew this was right in my alley. This was a perfect fit. But after after stewing over that and sulking a few days, I, I kind of let it go. Not long after that, I was watching um, the news one evening, and it, it turned out that people at the staff, employees, had showed up to work one Monday morning, only to be told that the company didn't exist any longer. They closed their doors and, and they were laid off. And so it was then, John, that it, it dawned on me. I mean, all like, wow, you know, if I'd, they call it kicking against the goats, right? If I had, you know, yes. pouted and, and, and cried and said all that, it's not fair, how would I have felt? Or what if I'd gotten this job and then, you know, a week or so later, you know, I, I, I was later. So that, I agree with you that sometimes that the no or the perspectives that come to us, even when we don't agree, yeah. um, oftentimes have blessings. Um, and them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at, at the same time, I, I really do think that it's, um, you, you know, I, as a writer now, I also experience rejection in, in, a, in a sort of a more immediate way in the form of, uh, I just turned a manuscript into an editor for my, my uh, the next book that's gonna get published. And uh, when, I first, when I wrote my first draft, it was 150,000 words. By the time an, ed an editor I work with and I finished revising it, it had gone from 150 down to 100, which meant a third of everything I'd written that I was so attached to, mm -hmm. that I was so protective of, that I was so in love with, a third of it is gone. <laughs> Turned into the publisher. Now I have a new editor at the publisher and she would, wants to take 10% more. And it's like, wow, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, stab me in the chest. So it, it isn't my book hasn't been rejected. I haven't been rejected, but 10% of my, of my ideas are, and I don't know which 10% for sure, are being rejected. And here's the thing. She's right. Mm. She's right. And it's, it's, even though I know that, 
I had the human experience of it. It's painful. I yeah. don't like it. I, yeah. I'm part of me goes, no, no, you're wrong. Yeah. You don't get yeah. it. You just, yeah. you're wrong. Yeah. yeah. I'm not, she's not wrong. She's right. So yeah, I mean, it comes in big forms and little forms. I experience it every day when I sit down to write and I have the voices in my head that say, uh, you can't do this. I have yeah. no, I'll sit down and say, I have no idea how this chapter works. This just happened. I just wrote another go-giver book. And I, I remember I sat down for, for a couple of weeks. I was stuck because I didn't know what's supposed to happen. And I have, in those circumstances, the rejection is coming from me, from the voices in my head. It's not coming from anybody else. Um, I'm sitting down, I'm saying, I, I, the other books worked, but this one, I really don't know. I mean, I, maybe this one's not gonna, maybe this one doesn't work. Maybe this one is the one that just, you know, doesn't work and I should just throw the whole thing. I hear myself say these things. I trained myself, Fred, decades ago, I trained myself to speak these thoughts out loud in the privacy of my home office so that I actually hear myself. I hear the running patter in my head. And sometimes I, I can't believe the garbage that comes out of my mouth. Mm. I, am I really saying that to myself? Mm. Yeah, I am. And so when I sit down in a chair and, and hear myself say, I don't know what to do with this mm. chapter. I don't know what happens. I take myself by the hand and say, okay, we're going to say that differently. Mm. It is, I don't know yet what mm. happens in this chapter can't wait to find out love it and in that there's a statement of unshakable faith that it's in there the good idea is in there and it'll come to me and that's the i think that's the piece that colonel sanders and mark victor hansen and yes. jack canfield and all those other stories there's that little kernel of faith which is that you know i, I may not have it right yet but when i get it right I know it's really good. I know the world wants this. I, I love know it. there's value to this. And, and that narrative, John, is, is, is so mm. powerful. Sometimes we're, we're our own worst enemies. You talk about these, these words and these negative words that, that we all struggle with, right? I mean, yes. bringing it even back to, to, to normal everyday life, right? Um, yes. How does one overcome that? I know you just talked about it, but perhaps it's, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's easy enough, and I, I say this carefully, it's easy enough when it's coming from someone telling you you're, you're no good, at least you're hearing it, right? But you have to wrestle with your own emotions, whether it's yeah. thoughts in your mind or the subconscious telling you you can't do anything. I'd imagine that it takes a lot of discipline, right, to overcome your own negative voices, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think first you have to decide to do it. You have to, you have to, you have to acknowledge, you have to identify that this is something that needs to happen. I, I, I need to do this because otherwise I'll be overrun by the negativity mm. and I'll end up like most people who wish that they would have written a book, but they just never quite get it done. Yeah. Right? Uh, uh, so there's, there's a point of decision uh, that you make where it, uh, I wrote a book with my friend, Brandon Webb, who's a former Navy SEAL, who was mm -hmm. a Navy SEAL sniper instructor, um, audio visual aid, mm -hmm. mastering fear. And we talk about a, a five-step process of harnessing your fears, um, not defeating them, not avoiding them, but using them uh, as an ally to accomplish. And it's similar to, to dealing with rejection. The first step is you make a decision. I got to do this. And, and I don't know. It's a great question, Fred. I think, how do you 
discipline yourself or learn or, or practice to, to, to have that faith and get through the, the self-doubt. I do think part of it is articulating it. Um, you know, for me, a very valuable practice has been to say out loud the, the voices in my head, <laughs> the voices in my head, to say out loud the oh, negative nice self-talk. title, by the way, Voices in My Head. Right? Voices in My Head. <laughs> yes. Um, to say those out loud, because it's almost like they say, you know, sunshine is a great disinfectant. Mm-hmm. Once you hear what you're saying, already it sounds a little bit absurd. It doesn't mean you're, you've conquered it, but it, you're starting to get a handle on it. And you're also starting to separate it from yourself. It's this thought you have, which isn't you. It's this thought. And so you expel it. I find that very helpful. Maybe writing things down is helpful. Um, I find speaking, speaking them out loud um, is extremely helpful. And you know, I also think that sometimes, you know, that's what mentors are really, really good for. Uh, mentors are good for so many things, but this may be the number one thing. Sometimes what a mentor can supply you is the faith in yourself that you need yes, to have, yes. but don't quite have yet. They're like faith training wheels. Um, so I, I think that can be very valuable. They're right mentors too, right? I might add because <laughs> the wrong ones yes. can, yeah, yeah. But, but John, you, yeah. you talk about the speaking thing, which I, I relate to. Um, and as a spiritual person, I always find a, a verse or two that always comes to mind um, when you talk about, uh, you know, speaking. But there's one... I think it's in the book of Proverbs. I love the book of Proverbs. Very practical book filled with a lot of wisdom. But it, it says yeah. that you're, you're ensnared by the words that come out of your mouth. And, and I think yes. you hit it right there, right? The words that we speak can either make us or break us and they end up becoming self-fulfilling prophecies. prophecies. But John, I want to dwell on that a little bit. This podcast is really about challenging mindsets and paradigms that holds us back. We're, there are a lot of people, John, who are stuck where they are because yeah. of some of these same things, right? Whether it's maybe uh, an experience they had in life, whether you know it's something someone told them, or whatever reason, there are a lot of people who are stuck who just can't seem to to get past where they are, and that's why we're doing. That's why you're on here sharing your perspectives. But mm-hmm. but for someone who've had to deal with this over and over again, maybe they've been told over and over again. There was a guy who came to do some work for me, John, not too long ago, and. He was having, having some, some health challenges and he told me how his dad died out of a cardiac arrest before 50 and how oh. certain members of his family also died before 50. The curse was upon him, yes. <laughs> he believed, John, he believed that he may or may not live to yeah. see 50 just because of what had happened. It was sad hearing those words. Um, so, so you have people who, for whatever reason, have bought into some of these narratives, whether it's been based on experience or whatever. <laughs> how do you overcome yeah. that john I, I think a really uh, important um reality I, I think a really vital uh, principle of life of life and living there is it's been said you know so many times but it, it can't it sort of can't be over said which is and it i think that uh, pindar says this in the, one of the first chapters of the go-giver it is it is you'd be surprised how much what happens to you has to do with what you expect. Mm. You'd be surprised how much circumstances and events around you um, 
are influenced by what you're thinking, what you're seeing, by your own perspective. We see this a lot in health. I spent many, many years in the realm of natural health, dealing with people with, with pretty serious illnesses. And it's a subtle thing. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a delicate thing because you don't want to frame it in a way that sounds like victim blaming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you don't want to blame the recipient of a disease. Like, well, you caused your own disease. Mm-hmm. You're a bad person. It's not like that. The point is, no, it is that we, the expectations that we have, whether it's about our health, about our uh, prosperity, mm-hmm. about our career success, or about our relationships, our expectations are so powerful. And our beliefs are so powerful. And beliefs and expectations are sort of two edges yeah. of the same thing, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, and so we see, you know, my wife and I are now both just over 65. So all, we have all these friends who are all on Medicare and, you know, looking at Social Security. Mm-hmm. And so you, hear, you have this conversation. And there's two very different conversations that people have. There's this conversation of, which is like, well, from here on in, everything's just going to break down and get mm-hmm. worse and worse, mm-hmm. and then I'll die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can't expect much. Mm-hmm. Uh, my hip's hurting. Well, what do you expect? You know, you're, get, you're mm-hmm. not getting any mm-hmm. younger. It's like, what a debilitating conversation. And you can wow. have that conversation when you're 20. Yeah. But people yeah. t- tend to have it when they're, when they're over 65 because that's when they think they're supposed to have it. Or there's the conversation. I remember my dad, when he, uh, he was a university professor, um, he was teaching at the time at Eastman up in Rochester, New York. And, and he, I think they had a mandatory retirement age. And I don't know if it was 70, I think it might've been 70. Anyway, at some pretty advanced age, he retired. And I remember him saying, ah, now I could really get some work done. Because he had all kinds of publishing projects. He wanted mm-hmm. translation projects and writing projects that he wanted to do. He hadn't had time because his teaching schedule had been a little bit busy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, his, his attitude was, I can't wait to see, you know, now what else, what else I can do. That's the kind of attitude I want to I take with me right up to my last breath. Yeah. It's like, I can't wait to see what's next. And I acknowledge that with advancing years, you may have less physical energy. You know, there are certain realities, right. but the reality isn't one of entropy. It isn't that everything's going to break down, you're going to die. People have the same expectations about their love life yep. or about their relationships or about their, their, their money. Um, people often peg out at a certain income level and, and no matter what, can't break past right. that income right. level. Right. And it's, it's, you know, there is, there is a significant degree to which that's the level yes. that they can see yes. themselves yes. earning and yes. not beyond that. Yes. So I think changing what you see, yeah. um, you know, there's a little book called Who Moved My Cheese? Yes, I've read it. Hugely, my, uh, library. <laughs> hugely, hugely successful back in the, in the late 90s in the, in the, when it was written and so forth. But You wrote the sequel um, to that, right? Out of the Maze, right? The sequel, yes. And uh, 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 Spencer Johnson was at the end of his life and he had, he had wanted to write this sequel and he died before it, it could be completed. And so they tapped me to, to, to finish this book. And it wow. was such what an interesting honor. thing. Seriously. It was such a cool thing to, uh, I had worked, I'd worked with Spencer and I knew him. So to, to try to put myself in his shoes mm-hmm. and the book is called out of the maze mm-hmm. and it's all about escaping from the maze that you built from your own beliefs mm. i'd like to read i haven't read out of the maze yet i'd like to add that to my collection for sure it's as short as who moved my cheese you can read it in probably an hour um this is really really dirt simple uh, but it's I, I think it's i can't think of anything more important 
um, to to sort of the state of the world right now than um, entertaining a new dialogue about separating from our beliefs and taking a look at them, not necessarily rejecting them, yeah, because yeah. some of them may be strong and may be yeah. good and may be solid, but stepping aside from that and looking at them, not identifying with them and saying, now I can choose to keep believing this, or I can choose to believe differently, mm. because we really truly can a belief is simply a thought yes. that you decide is true hmm. that's what a belief is a belief is a thought that you decide is true and and you know you may have so much overwhelming evidence in that decision that there's really no arguing it like that the sun is bright i think that and i i have decided that's true and i think it probably is <laughs> but we have much more sophisticated beliefs and much more uh, invisible beliefs mm. about human life that are simply thoughts that we've decided are true yeah and we can decide differently yeah if we want i love that i love that i want to use that maze here john as a as the analogy here uh, oftentimes we're, we're we're caught in this maze where we're trying to figure our way out and and we want a silver bullet. We want that magic wand. Bam, let's get out of here. Is there any such thing as a silver bullet when it comes to getting out of the maze, John? You know, I, often there is. Often there is. And it, it, it isn't that the silver bullet does the whole job, but there, there, sometimes there is a snap or a moment. And it isn't, ironically, I think it often isn't the solution necessarily or a picture of the outcome as much as it's a moment where you suddenly go, oh, wait, I thought that was true and I'm suddenly seeing holes in it. Or like I just suddenly saw the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain and realized he's this pudgy little guy. There are these moments of illumination that are not necessarily grasping the solution yet, as much as they are realizing the possibilities. Yeah. Like an epiphany, like an aha moment type of yeah. thing, like an idea, yeah. right? That leads yeah. you to the solution. Yes. Yeah. 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 John, having, having been through a lot, you talked about losing your son at a very young age and dealing with all this, you didn't call it rejection, but again, having to go back 40 times to rewrite your book, which ended up being a blessing in disguise there. Are you immune to, to anything really when it comes to fear of failure? <laughs> Am I immune? Yes. Did you say? Yes. I, I am I am not immune, no, but I, I am bolstered a little bit. Mm -hmm. So when I sit down to write a book and I have all kinds of fears about doing that, there is a void, you know, there's a part of me that says, now you have done this 30 times, you know, so there is some evidence that this is going to work out. And I do lean on that. It doesn't necessarily, it isn't enough <laughs> because I still have the same, mm -hmm. the same self-doubt that I ever had. I mean, in, in some ways, I have more now um, because I, I look back at something like The Go-Giver and say, well, I could never do that again. You know? uh, anytime people experience something successful, it's very, very easy to, for that to exert a gravitational pull on you. So mm -hmm. you feel like you can never es escape from that particular success to do something new and different. Um, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I am... I'm not immune, but my faith is stronger. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's one of the good things, right? Or the best things about, you know, having been through all of this. I will say, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger, right? In your case, yes. it's, it's definitely the latter. Um, one of the questions yes. you know, that I'd like to ask uh, my special guests is, 
is, is what defines them. And I, I, I ask this, this for a reason because oftentimes there are a lot of us who go through life and we allow the circumstances of life to define us. Whether again it's the past failure or someone else's opinion of us or the fact that we lost a, a, a job or lost a marriage or lost a family member. Again, not downplaying any of these things. These are, these are life-turning tragic events that, yes. that people, for whatever reason, allow to define them. Uh, if I were to ask you that question, uh, what defines you, what would that answer be? Well, um, I'm going to give it two answers. Because the first thing is I've had certain events that go the other way that were so, uh, um, so confidence-shaking that were so, I'm not going to use the word traumatic because that's not the point. It's more that they, were, they so shook my foundation of, of my faith in myself. Um, there have been a few books, there have been a number of books that I've either written or half written that, that got rejected, 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 and never did get published. And that still aren't published today. And after that happened a couple of times, that really shook me. I had two marriages fail. That really shook my confidence. My, my present marriage is, I, I like to say um, that third time's a charm. Mm -hmm. um, my, this marriage, which I've been in now for 10 years, um, has just been one of the greatest blessings, maybe the greatest blessing mm -hmm. of my life. I, you know, I'm married to someone who is my best friend in the world yeah. and just a wonderful human yeah. being. Yeah. And our life together is easy. Yeah. But... We were together in a relationship for 10 years first. And for those 10 years, I didn't really know if I could be a married person right. because I'd failed at it twice. Right. And, it, right. and it, it took me 10 years to realize my faith in my ability to be a husband was shot. Yes. I built it back up again and now it's very strong, but it was shook at first. So first I want to say there, there have been faith shaking events that have have taken a lot of time to grow past. But I will say here, here's a, a, a life-affirming event in my life. It's a weird, it's just a book I read. Um, it, it happened in two phases. I, when I was a kid, I think 10 years old or something, maybe 11, I, I read the Narnia books. C.S. Lewis, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, on all the way through the last battle. And when I got to the end of the last battle, Literally, my whole, I, I shook for a couple of days. I was a kid, but I couldn't, I, I asked my mom if I could stay home from school. For two or three days, I stayed home from school because I, my whole world was so shaken. I just, just, I cried for two days because that book kind of gave me a, it was like thunder in my head. I realized that there was a greater reality than the world of our five senses and the world, you know, of playing games and being outside it until dark and coming home for dinner and going to bed. You know, my kid's world that there was something far more profound going on. That's never left me. I mean, it just, but it, it shook me up because I didn't know what it meant. Mm -hmm. A few years later, I read a book by Buttmister Fuller. And Fuller, uh, who I later got to meet, an amazing man, Fuller beautifully articulated this faith that he had in the basic goodness of humanity. And... More important than that, the basic goodness of the universe. Mm -hmm. There was a basic, the universe wasn't neutral. It wasn't simply a neutral field of laws of physics, but that, that there was a fundamental goodness to the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that struck me. 
because I'd never really thought about what is the world like? Mm -hmm. I'd never thought past my own little, you know, first C.S. Lewis jarred me into realizing there was something made of spirit. And then Fuller caused me to realize that people have worldviews. Some people's worldview is inherently negative. Some people's worldview is inherently undecided. My worldview is inherently positive. And it, it has been since I read that book at the age of 13 by Fuller. Uh, and that has that has stayed with me. Yeah. But you know, I it happened to me. Actually, I was I think I was sixteen when I read that Fuller book. It could happen when you're twenty five. Yeah. It could happen when you're thirty. It could happen when you're seventy. Yeah. Um, you always have an opportunity to take a look at your beliefs, step aside from them, evaluate them, and then make new choices. Yeah. Which is that's kind of what happened yeah. to me at sixteen. Yeah. Wow. It's interesting how a book, right, um, makes okay. uh, makes a difference. I I had two. This is of why those I believe books. in books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two of those books. Uh, one which I accidentally came across, you know, in my gosh early teens, in my uh, late grandfather's bookcase, "The Power of Positive Thinking" by Norman Vincent. Oh, Peele. Norman Vincent Peale, sure. That totally revolutionized revolutionized my life and my thought yeah. process, and really got me into this whole self-help yes. thing and the second one which was late in my 20s i was living in england at the time was uh one by Ogmandino called the choice um mm. the one that really i reread it uh very recently and you know just very different meanings but you've read over 30 books john you've written over well over 30 books which one is your favorite so which one has been your favorite so far as far as writing experience is concerned if, if there's 80 <laughs> writing experiences you know i mean it, it's Boy, I mean, that's so difficult to say um, um, because it's, you know, in a way your books are like your children. Yeah. You're not supposed to have favorites. Yeah. Maybe you do anyway, but, but you don't want to say so. Exactly. <laughs> but but um, a couple of books really stand out for me in terms of the experience of them. Um, you know, I guess I'll mention uh, three. One is The Go-Giver. I mean, The Go-Giver, the reason that has stood out for me so much is that um, it was the first thing I, it was the first book I wrote and it, it's, it sells more copies today than it sold 10 years ago. I mean, it's, it's grown and grown and grown and grown. It really touched a chord with people mm. and it's been just amazing. Uh, this morning I, I came, I, I got, I got Google alerted about a, an art, an interview or an article in uh, nasdaq.com about this young entrepreneur started this business called think T H Y N K who talks about the go-giver mm. as having been the book that inspired her. It's like, wow. Smoke. wow. This happens constantly. So it's like the go-giver was my, was, has been my opportunity to realize that sitting in my little room, interacting with my keys on my computer and with a pen and, and pad of paper, I can have a conversation with a million people. Yes, impacting <sighs> lives too, right? Turning lives oh my around. Gosh, changing lives. Yeah, it, it is. It is. Um, the, the the second experience I mentioned is that book <laughs> before Out of the Maze, just because you know writing in the footsteps of a legend was just such a an incredible experience, and because that's so unlike my writing style, mm -hmm. I don't write books that simple. Spencer style. Spencer wrote children's books yeah. before he wrote uh, "Who Moved My Cheese." Yeah. So it 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 was the experience of stretching myself into a completely different sort of style than than I'm used to, and it mm -hmm. and it it was just amazing. 
The third book I'll mention is one that isn't out yet, and that's my novel. And I mention that only because it, it feels like for the last 10, 15, 20 years, I've been going up and down hills writing books, and I just climbed down Everest. <laughs> writing a novel, a full-length novel, uh, was something that I, I just somehow never saw myself doing, never imagined I can do. Writing a, a, a full-scale novel is a very daunting task. Mm -hmm. um, writing a novel that works is an even more daunting task. And we just got a two-book deal with Ballantine Books. Wow. novel worked. And uh, it, it was the single most challenging writing project I've ever encountered. Um, and, you know, sort of caused me to discover more about myself in the process. So, you know... Climb Mount Everest, you can. It's, like, it, it's, it's something I never thought I would be able to do. And it's been amazing doing it. Wow, wow, wow. Now, you did mention a while ago before we started the recording that you have a new Goalgiver book coming out, right? Or is that the novel? Both of them actually have. No, it's not the novel. It's separate. No, totally separate, yeah. Because the, the Goalgiver is probably the shortest book. Actually, Out of the Maze is the shortest book I've ever written. This novel is probably the longest book. Ever. Um, there is another Goalgiver book. It's just finished in draft. It's don't even have a publication date yet. Uh, probably it will be a year or a little more. Let's say maybe the fall of 2021 um, or sometime. And that's the Goalgiver marriage. So this is all about the idea of applying so the, the central go-giver idea, which is the more you give, the more you have. It's this core paradox. We call it Pindar's paradox. Mm -hmm. That the more you give, the more you have. It's sort of the opposite of the normative laws of traditional economics. That's right. That's right. Which is that spending depletes. But that isn't true about kindness. And it isn't true about respect. It isn't true about knowledge. And it isn't true about love. When you give knowledge, you often end up gaining knowledge. When you give respect, you gain more respect. When you give love, you become the recipient. You don't, your supply of love doesn't get depleted. It gets amplified. It's paradoxical. Um, and that's Pindar's paradox. So we, we took a look at that in relation to relationships. We called it marriage, but it could apply to other relationships as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, what better time, uh, John, to mention that, especially considering what we're experiencing in, in our world, right, in our societies where there's it's yep. so much so much hate filled with, with anger. And, and, and I get it. I, I want to be careful because this is still a very sensitive topic, right? But you, you yeah. talk about giving love, right, even, even when you're wronged. Right. Can, can, we, yeah. can we touch on that a little bit? Probably maybe the way to kind of wind this down, especially when you feel justified, right, to give back hate. Yeah. Right. I mean, you've been maybe mistreated by other people. And, and, and again, I get it. I know exactly where that's coming from because sometimes you got to do certain things to get the attention. But yes. um, how does one, I guess, grapple with all of that, especially what we're going through right now? What do you give back if, if all you've gotten your whole life is, is hate and all the mistreatments and, and all of that. How do you, yeah. how do you even find the place in your heart to give back love? <laughs> I'm not sure. That's such a huge question yeah. and such a, a big, I guess big and huge are the same thing, right? Yes, it's yeah. such a, a huge <laughs> question. Um, but, but let me just take a piece of it. Piece. Yes. Uh, which is, you know, 
at the moment, it feels almost as if we have uh, lost the capacity for uh, for discourse, lost the capacity for dialogue with uh, with someone who has different viewpoints than ours. Right? So there is that extreme polarization of the conversation, whether it's political or or you know cultural or whatever. Right. So we're having that going on going on furiously. Um, in one of the Go-Giver books, all the Go-Giver books um, deal with a set of five principles. And um, one of the characteristics of the Go-Giver books is that the first four principles all kind of related to each other. And the fifth one seems like it's an opposite. It seems paradoxical. Mm -hmm. It seems almost to contradict the first four. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it's like your thumb. You know, you can't pick things up without mm -hmm. a thumb. Mm -hmm. And so in the, go, the original Go-Giver book, there are these four principles of giving. Uh, and then the fifth one is the law of receptivity, which is the only way you can, you can continue to stay open and the only you can keep giving is to stay open to receiving. And, you know, we've had more readers come back to us in the last 10 years and say, the first four laws I get, but that fifth one, man, that is tough for me because yeah. I'm not good at receiving. Well, I'm going to apply this to your question. In one of our books, The Go-Giver Influencer, which is about dialogue, when it's about negotiating and having different points of view, um, the fifth principle, the thumb principle, is let go of having to be right. Mm. That is, in a dialogue or in a confrontation or in a situation where you're dealing with something antagonistic, whether it's a business negotiation or a shouting match or, you know, or whatever, Whatever, any kind of antagonistic or confrontive situation, the fifth and most powerful principle of go-giver negotiation is to let go of having to be right. And what that means is it doesn't mean saying, who cares? My opinion doesn't matter. Yeah, whatever. That's not what it means. What it means is I have my views. I have my opinions. I even have my feelings but they are not the top priority in this exchange. They're important. Get me wrong. My point of view is important to me. I mean, I think I'm right about this, whether we should tear down that statue or not tear down that statue or whether we should you know, do this or that or do this with the economy. Or do, I think I'm right. You know, we should have a universal basic income. We shouldn't have a universal. It's communism. It's, it's, it's common sense. I have my opinion, right? And it's important to me. But in our conversation, it's not the top priority. The top priority is our conversation, is that we're in dialogue. Mm -hmm. Now, my number one priority is that I want to hear what you're saying. And if possible, I would love it if you hear what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I can't control the second one, but I can control the first one. I want to get what's going on. I want to hear you. I, I want to be in this dialogue, not just stand back and throw rocks at each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the Commitment to being in the dialogue is the top priority. My point of view may be really close, but it's below it. It's mm -hmm. subjugated. Mm -hmm. And here's the, here's the really, really cool thing about that is, even though I'm pretty sure I'm right, and that's important to me, if I engage in the dialogue, I might change my mind. Mm -hmm. I might discover that I'm not quite as right as I thought I was. Mm -hmm. I experienced that with editors in the editing process. They come back and say, you know, I think this whole chapter has got to go. And I'm just like, no, you're wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. 
But in that professional context, I've learned, okay, I have to just listen. I have to try to hear what they're saying, keep the dialogue open. And typically I discover, I find out that there's something in what they're saying that's absolutely dead on. That's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing is true in our exchanges, no matter how hostile, no matter how vitriolic, no matter how sensitive and controversial, we could hear, we can listen and keep our convictions, but let them be second priority to our humanity is what I'm really saying. Our humanity really, really has to come first. That is so powerful. And, and, and it comes contrary to what a lot of people believe. A lot of us really believe it comes from a place of strength. It does. To be able to, to, be able right. to allow or subjugate your viewpoint and listen to someone else's, right? Because it, it's like, well, you know, no, I'm going to show that I'm, I'm the stronger person. I'm going to, you know, say what I say and let the chips fall. But it takes, contrary to what we, it takes a lot of strength. Yeah. To say, Look, you have your way. I'm going to listen to you, right? Yeah, it's the strength of humility yeah. and, and genuine humility, not, you know, self-abasement. Yeah. We're not talking about you know, being a martyr or self-sacrificial or, or you know, denying, it, but genuine humility, which is understanding that I have limitations. That's what humility is. Yeah. Humility is simply accepting and understanding that I'm a human being and I have limitations and that there are things I don't know <laughs> that I don't even know I don't know. Yeah. Approaching a situation with genuine humility along with the con- strength of your convictions, that is a strength. That is a great, great strength. John, this, is, this has been so great. I want to be respectful of time here, but we, this is a conversation that could go on and on and on. But yes. as, as we wrap this up, I want you to have the last word here. Um, there's probably someone listening to this podcast or watching uh, on Facebook or YouTube or whatever who may feel stuck, right? For whatever reason, maybe past experiences and, and fear, maybe things that may have been said or, or whatever, and just don't know the way or can't seem to figure their way out of this maze, right? John, you talked about the decisions and you talked about, you talked about the speaking and the words that, that we say. What would you say to someone stuck in that maze right now, figuring out the way to get out? Maybe it's a, one of the things that you said, which I think resonates so deeply, um, you know, that idea which may be so unconventional that we may not think may be the answer or the, or the pathway um, yes. to what we're looking for. How, how, does one, how does one treat those thoughts? Maybe that's not the ideal, but well, whatever. I mean, I'm expecting a big sign, right? I expect <laughs> thunder and lightning, but here it is. It's a, it's a whisper. What am I going to do with this whisper? There's this great... Right. You know this. You know the movie. Uh, you know the movie Bruce Almighty. Yes. Yeah. So there's this great. My favorite scene is the scene where he's he's driving along and he's uh, he's he's trying to decide. To, and he, in front of him, there's this truck which is filled with all these road signs, and he's driving along. And he goes, "God, send me a sign." Yep. And there's like you know fifty signs in front of him, <laughs> but he doesn't see any of them because <laughs> he's too busy asking. Right. Oh, it's just so. It's it's a great movie. Um, <laughs> You know, there's, there's, uh, I, I have, I have two thoughts to share. You know, one of them is, is the central thought that comes out of that book, Out of the Maze, which is this question. You know, often the way I find my way out of naughty situations, Gordian knots, mm-hmm. um, is always through questions. You know, I am very Socratic in my view of the world. I believe that there is, this, there is, truth is revealed in, in dialogue and question. So I often ask myself questions. I believe more in questions than affirmations. Um, and 
one central question in that book is, what would you do if you thought it was possible? You know, there may be something that, that you just, you don't think is possible. Fine. You can go ahead and think that. But if you thought it was possible, what would you do? Mm. If I thought I could write a novel, what would I do? Mm. If I thought I could write books, what would I do? Mm. If I thought I could get married again, who would it, you know? Mm. If you thought it was possible, what could you do? Mm. And then I want to share a second thought, if I may. Please. Along with that, um, which is something that just cropped up was working on the very first chapter of The Go-Giver Marriage, and this is a, a question that I ended up asking my, our, our main character, which is, imagine that you're at, you're in the last chapter of your life. Imagine, we'll say that you're 90 years old, and it might be 100, or it might be whatever. You may already, you may be listening to this, and you may be 90, so if so, you know, forgive me. Make it 100. <laughs> but let's say you're 90 years old, and your career is behind you. It's been great. Whatever you did, you've done it. You are now, your health is generally good. Your finances are basically in order. You may not be wealthy, but they're basically in order. There are no pressing needs or obligations on you right now. You're 90 years old. You have some time ahead of you. I don't know how long, a year, five years, 10 years, whatever it is, you have a, you have a chapter of life ahead of you. The slate is clean. The page is blank. What do you do with your day? Then once you've answered that question, the follow-up question is, okay, how can you take that and put it in your life today, at least in, to some degree? How can you do that, live that life, do that thing right now in your current circumstances, in your current situation? being who you are. There's always a way. Mm. Mm. What profound words of wisdom and what a good way to end this edition of Time with Fred. John, thank you so much for making this time available. Thanks for letting us in. Thanks for the words of wisdom, and especially this last one, which I know is going to be ringing in my head. I'm going to try to answer that question um, for sure. But Thank you so much again for coming on tonight's podcast. I really appreciate your time and the very best um, as you work on these these next books. And uh, looking forward, to, I haven't read. I must admit, I haven't read the Goal Giver. Um, so one, the one I want to read first is Out of the Maze because I've read uh, Home of My Cheese and, and I love it. So I, I really want to see what the sequel is. And I really want, yeah, I really <laughs> want to see how this this maze thing plays out. But definitely going to be getting it. But thank you again so much uh, for your time today and for our audience for listening um, on Spotify, iTunes, uh, iHeartRadio, uh, Podbean, or if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube. Thank you again. Really appreciate your time. And uh, until next time, stay well. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Fred. Take care. <laughs>